ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If a computer made up information about you, would you sue it? Yes, this week on Download This Show, the famed AI service ChatGPT, which can do everything from write haiku poems to crib animal farm, has a new skill. It can make up inaccurate information and not tell you where it got it from. And now people are starting to sue over that. Also on the show, Apple have unveiled their newest and most ambitious project in years, the virtual reality headset Apple Vision Pro. So, is the era of spatial computing upon us? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to download this show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and a very big welcome to our guests, uh, CEO of Girl Geek Academy, Sarah Moran. Welcome back. So great to be back, Mark. I think my voice hit a pitch there that only dogs can hear. Uh, also joining us from the University of the Sunny Coast, uh, I think we can call it the Sunny Coast, Dr. Erica Mealy. Is that like not official enough? Oh, I think we can go with Sunny Coast. We're, we're pretty cool. We do some pretty cool stuff. And uh, yeah, we're sustainable. We don't need to use too much power. We'll just keep it to UniSC. UniSC. Five letters. That works. <laughs> that is definitely a misappropriation of the, the word sustainability. But you know what? I'll go with it. All right. So uh, the two of you, who, uh, who wants to spend $5,000 on a virtual reality headset? You can go first, Mark. I will leave you to spend your pretty dollars on those things. No, look, but I'm, I'm keen to have a go. You know, I've had the Snap Spectacles. I've had the Oculus Rift and I've sold most of them on uh, on some sort of third-party marketplace website already. But I'm keen. I'm dead keen to, to get in and, and try this one. So we are talking about Apple's Vision Pro, which is uh, probably the biggest and most ambitious thing that Apple have launched in, in a couple of years. It is their virtual reality headset. Now, we do know, and I think you've referred to it there, quite a few companies are already in this space at the moment. Um, there's been Oculus, uh, which is owned by Meta, who are the Facebook people, and, and, and Sony have had their virtual reality headset. For this one, though, Dr. Erica, what makes Apple's product different, if anything? Well, I think the main one really is that Apple just does it better. Them's fighting words. Them's fighting words. All these Android people there are already writing their complaints. Yeah, full disclosure, I'm an Android girl because it just annoyed me that Apple wouldn't let me have access to my own files. But um, so we look at the iPod, for instance, there were other media players out at the time, but iPod was the dominant one because they did it well, because they looked at what the user was, they made the interface nice and clean, they looked at how it had to work. And so the great thing I think with this is that because they've got such history of really caring how it's going to be used and by who, that they've come up with some unique things. Like you can actually make it so that the headset shows your eyes so that not only do the cameras look at your eyes to like drive the mouse, you can show your eyes to the outside, which is the first one of these headsets that's kind of done that. We're used to seeing the big Oculus headsets and, you know, you can clearly tell they're not really part of what's going on around them, but they can see what's in it. But now we can see them in it. So they are first class citizens of the world around them still. So (laughs) it'll be really interesting. I don't know that I want to put 5k down on it yet, but hopefully over time it gets cheaper. Out of all the different features, and there's like no shortage of features on these headsets. Sarah, what stood out to you as being the most, I guess the most innovative, something you hadn't seen before? 
Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think the mo- actually weirdly the most innovative is probably one of the most basic and that it's not chasing gamers. So a lot of the headset market has really relied on a gamer community to get up and running. And what that does is it then kind of gets stuck into this ecosystem of, oh, that's a game device. Whereas this product is really focused, you know, it's it's more like, you know, as you said, you know, they've had their iPad, you know, they brought out the iPod and things like that. This is a new type of product chasing a new market. And I think that's where it has the opportunity to be late but worth the wait. And I can't tell if it's one of those things that's going to get caught up in the uncanny valley or not. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's really dangerous with this uncanny valley because just the slightest difference and people just can't stand it. So you're almost better off going sort of cartoony or comical from the perspective that, you know, at least then we expect it to be different. And even things like how often you blink is one of those big research areas. Like how can we make a robot look realistic with how it blinks? So being able to show your face behind virus screen is a really slippery slope. So it'll be interesting to see how they solve that and how that improves over time. What do you reckon, Sarah? Well, I've played a lot with, you know, some of the new AI filters that are coming out. Um, I've recently redone all of my headshots in, in fun and quirky ways, and it actually surprised me how much even very quickly that uncanny valley is falling away. So I, I know Apple's phone, the when you do FaceTime at the moment, it can track your, you know, it does the automatic reset of your eyes so it looks like you're talking directly to the person even though you're not. So, I mean, if anyone can pull off really great face-to-face sort of calls that are a little bit AI, a little bit not quite right. I think that Apple would be the ones to perfect it. So I'm happy to see them have a crack. We should probably talk about that that price point. $5,000 is roughly what you're looking at paying in Australia for this. That is significantly more than what uh, you would pay for some of the other uh, headsets that are out in the market. Do you think people are prepared to pay that amount of money, Erica? There's definitely a, a price point that people will pay above normal for Apple devices. And I think that's because they see the brand, they understand the quality, and so they're willing to pay that little bit more. I think, though, the market that they're chasing that's not the gamers is where it's going to get hard for them. They really have to sell to the mums and dads and everyone else that this is actually a useful tool because the gamers, they'll they'll throw $5,000 at it. No worries. But the other uses is where it's going to get interesting. I think if it starts being packaged with phones perhaps or, you know, some of those kind of, you know, pay later type deals, it might just actually be okay at that price point. But fingers crossed that it does come down with price because as they tend to get through the models, it does normally decrease, though maybe not with Apple all the time. I think the other thing I always come down to, Sarah, with this is like there are products that you look at and go, there's no obvious use case for you, but then eventually if they become popular enough, they just become part of the lexicon. And I guess the obvious example here is like the iPad, right? Nobody was sitting out there going, oh, I really need a thing called an iPad. And then before you know it, it becomes part of, you know, the fabric of people's lives. This is very expensive as a first generation device, but do they actually need mums and dads or are they creating their own category here, Sarah? You know, I've thought about this a lot. As I mentioned earlier, it's the idea that enterprises will definitely be able to throw 5K at this. And already with VR, we see a lot of uses around, you know, safety training and things like that. So that will kick off the market. And then, you know, I guess you'll also have a secondhand market that kicks in, which will make it more affordable. But in terms of when I was like, what does it do? People would tell me all the technical things like, oh, you can pinch and it will do this thing. And if a person comes, and I'm like, yeah, but what do I use it for? Like, is it for games or, you know, am I going to sit there and use it? 
it for word processing. You know, by the looks of it, you can use it for watching movies, but it only has a two-hour battery life. So it kind of, you know, you have to search for movies that are under two hours in length. And, you know, so I, I think where I am optimistic is that I think about back to when the iPod came out and how that changed how we used that technology because it hadn't existed before. And we now have podcasts that are just everywhere and they didn't really exist pre-iPod. So I'm optimistic that once we have the devices, we will then unlock new and creative ways about what to do with it. We should talk about the the battery situation, right? Because it is obviously an incredible piece of engineering. I mean, that much is obvious from just watching what they've kind of loaded into. It's got cameras coming out the wazoo. As I think you mentioned before, Sarah, but the battery is feels decidedly very unapple, Erica, in the sense that there is a wire that goes from your head down to an external battery pack that you kind of, you know, you can see them art, artfully trying to like direct around in their promo videos. Why is the battery external, Erica? I think there's probably a couple of reasons. So one is just the engineering of it. It could be quite heavy. It could get quite hot. And there's also that sort of risk, I guess, around, you know, is it producing radiation? Do we really want that so close to our brains? So I think some of it's probably a bit of a precaution, but also it's to do with size and weight. Trying to balance that on the headset without making the headset too heavy. These kinds of things are really different. We've been improving rapidly being able to micro-size those batteries and make them more reusable, last longer and these kinds of things. But yeah, it is decidedly an Apple and it's surprising that they actually came to market with it. If they're this far behind, why didn't they wait and try and solve that problem? Which to me suggests that there is a bigger motivation such as a safety, medical or engineering reason behind it. One thing that is extremely Apple is all the little aesthetic things that they, they load into these devices. And one of the things I thought was really I, I look, I'll confess I was kind of impressed by, which is when you put it on, you have the capacity to kind of control how much of your environment you're looking at through the, um, the device and how much you can control. And I think the best example they put up is, say, if you're sitting in a plane and you want to watch a movie, you can basically dial up how much of the environment's around you and how much you want to replace the environment with, say, nature or things of that nature. I have to say, I, that felt very, very Apple to me, Sarah. It's weird when I was thinking of, you know, as I said, all the use cases that you could have, the fact that when people have been trying it, they've given them a one minute meditation, you know, really associating it with that idea of wellness and that this is, you know, it's not, oh, we're just getting in there to be tech and nerdy. It's like, how is this going to improve our lives? I think is very much part of the Apple storytelling and the Apple approach, which is why, it, you know, really is positioned to have a good chance of succeeding where others have gone the way of Google Glass and things like that. So, I'm pretty optimistic. I must say, it is the most ambitious thing that's come out of Apple in a very long time. And I do kind of like seeing Apple go back to being ambitious, I guess, Sarah, because I think for a long time it's been like, cool, there's a new generation of an iPhone. Cool, there's a new generation of, a, of an iPad. There's something to be said for when when Apple throw their weight behind something. Even And it's so classic Apple, right, because there's, there's so many other VR headsets out in the market already, exactly like there were with, you know, sort of smartphones and stuff like that. But it's sort of the way they bring it together and put that sort of Apple sheen on it is kind of the special source that, that what they do you know, they're the only ones that can do it, I think. And for me, whenever a new Apple device has come out, it's interesting how it interacts with the other Apple devices. So, for example, when the AirPods came out, I really 
used my phone in a different way. And I'm looking, you know, I've been looking at the last couple of phones. I'm like, I've just stopped updating my iPhone. I'm like, it's pretty good. And so when you run out of space to innovate in your current products, I understand that a new product is the way to change the game. And I'm hoping that with the Vision Pro, it's going to change the way I might use my phone or, or the way that I play music and maybe not so much for the home pod or, you know, how are they all going to interact together? I think you're right. That ambition is just something that, geez, I've missed it and I'm happy to see it back. All right. So now that we've, you know, we've talked up the things we like about it, you did mention the battery life before. What is it, Dr. Erica, that this doesn't have, that it should have or should do better? With this one, I think part of it is it's just new. We're yet to see those use cases really come out, like Sarah was saying. We haven't really got the killer application for it yet that says this is how you should use it. And I think that will come with time. But it is interesting that they've gone back to bring, you know, these innovative technologies out. But ecosystem is how they do what they do well at Apple, making everything work together. So I'm, like Sarah, intrigued to see what those use cases will be. Apart from that, I think really it's the price and perhaps that battery are the main ones that I've seen identified. Mm. Sarah? The difference with this launch, I find, so when the watch came out, they'd partnered with a number of developers to, you know, really be creative about what you could do with it. And this has obviously been very top secret project. Some leaks did happen through some of the code, you know, a couple of a little while ago. But what we haven't seen is like, I still don't know what I can do with it. Like, I mean, sure, I can FaceTime. Like, that's sort of a given, right? The downside is until developers can get in and start building apps on it, I don't really know what's going to happen. Like, is it going to be really boring or is it going to be super fun? I, well, I guess it's probably worth pointing out that they did announce this at Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference and the actual device doesn't come out till next year. So they've basically given the developer community six months to kind of come up with something for it. So hopefully that when it does become available early next year, there will be things you can do on it beyond just FaceTime with a AI version of your face. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, the CEO of Girl Geek Academy, Sarah Moran, and lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunny Coast, Sunshine Coast, USC. You take your Dr. Erica Mealy. Mark Finelli is my name. And we've talked a lot about the AI service ChatGPT. And it's, you know, very good at communicating. Also, easily sued. Sarah, what's happened? Oh my goodness. So ChatGPT has been hallucinating on us. Um, and when someone was looking for information on, on a court case, they asked ChatGPT to tell them a little bit about it. And a completely fabricated story came into existence. At no point could ChatGPT source the information that it had come from. And so the person who is bringing forward an allegation towards OpenAI and saying, hey, you've defamed me, was absolutely involved in a creative story made up by ChatGPT. And so now we're starting to move into that conversation about, well, how accurate is ChatGPT supposed to be? And can you sue it for defamation? There's two things with this. One, ChatGPT, Erica, is covered now in caveats about, you know, ChatGPT may give you false information, right? So this is not like a thing that they're unaware of. So if, if it's covered in those caveats, why are they still suable? Or is this just somebody really doing the test case that we all kind of figured was going to happen? I think it really is the test case. And this is the second one. The One of the first ones against it was actually from a mayor in Victoria who um, was incorrectly said to have been convicted of crime through ChatGPT. So they've, they've been going after ChatGPT in a lot of jurisdictions. I think it's the problem that what we can actually say is accurate or not accurate. And I think we need to teach the users when not 
to use it. So asking a question like that of ChatGPT probably was never a good idea because it was always going to be creating information. It's generative. It's, it's by nature creating new information. I really think uh, it's about setting the case studies and setting the bounds of when we use it. But it was always going to be a case that someone was going to misuse it and try and pin it on the company. I mean, there's a little bit in here about media literacy as well, right, Sarah? Because I, I think, you know, in the just in the time we've been talking about it on this show, I went from being like, this is a Google killer to, no, this is Clippy on crack, basically. Like what I use it for these days is like, if I want to write something out, I then load it in chat GPT and basically go clean up my spelling, grammar and syntax. I mean, I know we talk about it being generative, but I'm, I'm not sure I would trust it to generate information because I think one of the things that is most salient out of this case is that when asked... ChatGPT can't tell you where it gets its information from. And that's probably the part I find most disconcerting. It'd be, it'd be one thing if me to kind of click through a Google link and see what, what erroneous website it arrived at a certain fact. But with ChatGPT, it's, it's still a little bit of a black box. Is that something that does need to change, Sarah? Oh, well, you talked about, you know, the media literacy, even just the chat GPT user experience. It's just literally a box. It's just when, when Google first came out, it was just a box and you would punch stuff in and you would get stuff back. The interface is very similar here. You know, it's just a box. You have no information about how to use it really or what's happening. And so when you first start using it, you're like, wow, this is throwing up so much information. How great. But the moment, as you say, once you start using it, you scratch beneath the surface and you see, actually, this is a language model. What it is doing is it is connecting one word to the next word and it is generating content. It is not searching for information. I actually really hit on it when I was trying to write people's bios and I was very cheating. And I was like, write Sarah Moran's bio, please. And it did a great job because it uh, apparently I'm in the I'm in the language model that they have used. But then when I tried it on somebody who didn't have any sort of bios available online, it made the same bio for like five different people. And I think that's what people need to understand is when they start using it, it will seem like this is Google, this is a search engine. But in actual fact, what it is, it is a creative writing tool, more like, you know, something like Grammarly or, or some other, as you say, Clippy on crack. I know people that have basically taken a bunch of dot points and said, turn this into an op-ed piece for a newspaper. I know other people that go the other direction where they write it out and they get it to clean it up. Like it's a tool, right? It's undeniably a tool. It's not going anywhere. And I think maybe we need to reframe this idea of it cheating because I think we need to work out how we best use it in our lives, if that makes sense, Erica. It is. It's it's like the calculator. So when they brought calculator in, there are a lot of math educators that are like, that's cheating. You should have to know those sums, da, da, da. But we use it like a tool and we know exactly when we can use a calculator and when we can't. And we still know how to do basic, basic math. We, we haven't lost those skills. We just use it to help and augment our life in a positive way. And that's where we need to get to with this. My problem is that it's not as good as Grammarly because there is that generative element to it. You can feed information in and it might not give you your polished text back. It might just give you some other text that's related. And it's not even as good as Wikipedia because it can just make stuff up. So, you know, it, it's got this great promise of what it could do, but I think people are using it too much. And there's this analogy that when, you know, when people have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so we have to be careful that we're not just using it because it's there, but because it's the right tool for the job, like you said, and that we're teaching people, well, how do you get a good 
prompt, how do you get it to give you good information? Because there's an art of Googling. You are 100% in the model. Now, of course, all of this comes uh, at the same time as the Albanese government is, is considering a ban on what they call high-risk uses of artificial intelligence and automated decision-making. So this, this kind of falls in that category, doesn't it, Sarah? It absolutely does. The government's really peddling fast to try and get ahead of, of what's happening and what sort of policies they should be coming out with to help uh, really manage how this is going to affect us across society. But there are some things that are really obvious about you know what we should not be using AI for, and then there are the things that are really starting to emerge. And so there's a big consultation happening with the government at the moment, trying to get their head across it. Um, and I think we're going to see some laws come out you know in the not too distant future because they want to be seen to be tackling this head on. What kinds of guidelines would you put in place, Sarah? My guidelines are actually about who's creating it. So, um, and it's very hard because a lot of this technology is not created in Australia. For me, I mean, it's it's gender inequality in who's creating this stuff, you know, and I, I would really like to see, I don't know, some sort of policy about how do we make sure that, you know, women, people of colour are included in how this technology is built because it's us that will need to deal with the backlash of, of the negative consequences of how some of these tools are used. What about you, uh, Erica? What, what sort of guidelines and, I guess, philosophical underpinnings would you put in place? My PhD was around automation and when should we and when shouldn't we. So this is totally my jam. I love this. But like an example was in New Zealand, one of the political parties used a deep fake video of one of their candidates. And there was this huge uproar about it. And there's this idea that is there ever a good reason to create a deep fake video? I couldn't really think of one. I mean, maybe a history lesson with an avatar of Washington. I don't know. But this idea of creating deep fakes, and I think that's where one of the regulation areas will fall because that's where you get this overtrust of technology. Oh, yeah, I believe that that's Mark talking there. Or, yeah, I believe Erica would say something like that. And, you know, what does that mean in a court of law if they turn up and say, well, here's a video of my lecturer saying this? when it was never me. And so I think that area is ripe for regulation and will be a really important area. But for me, the big one is that overtrust. There's so many people that are like, computer says, so I must. And, you know, we did some studies a long numbers of years ago around too much technology in air traffic control and all these processes that have to have a human involved in the process. As soon as you introduce technology, you have to take great care for anything safety critical. And again, who's at fault when it eventually hurts somebody? We don't know. Is it the AI's fault? Well, not really because it's not a person. Well, is it the person who wrote the software that trained the model? Is it the person who decided what the input was? It Was it the driver behind it? What, like, how do we regulate that area of it? And I think that's the area. And it's so good to see the Australian government on the front foot. And this is one of the first times I can remember that we've come out and gone, yes, Let's fix it. Let's let's talk about it, and uh, and not just hide ourselves down in the you know southern hemisphere and just pretend like it's not happening to us. I also just sort of wonder what it does to us, right? So I I downloaded the the beta version, the newest version of Adobe Photoshop, and one of the things it offers is a thing called generative fill, and it's stunningly effective, like stunningly effective, and it's got that slightly smooth plasticine feeling, and it feels. Fake. I think you can still, you know, at a certain resolution, you can still identify that it's fake. But this stuff, I was just like, oh, I'm never trusting a picture again, Sarah. What do you think it changes about us and our generalised sense of 
truth <laughs> and reality. If some, if we know, we now know as a community that everything can be generated, everything can be faked with varying levels of convincingness. Oh, I'm teetering because I've I've had these tools and I'm like, do I use them? Do I not use them? Do I use them? Do I not use them? And so, you know, the other day I did for the first time, I generated my AI headshots and for the most part, they were great. And then I shared them on social and I'm, I'm watching as all these women are saying to me, oh my God, you look so beautiful. This looks amazing. I'll share with everybody, but you know, I used a tool called Try It On AI. It was 17 bucks. I got a hundred photos and I'm the sort of person who will invest in headshots. Like I believe in paying photographers. I believe in all of those sorts of things. But, you know, I got a hundred shots back. Some of the, it was just worth it for the hilarity of the ones that did it really badly. But, <laughs> you know, there are a number of them where I'm looking at them going, that is me, you know, that really, and, and I'm like, well, is it or isn't it? But it really was, like, it did effectively capture the right parts of my photography, not in a biased sort of way, just in a general way. And the difference is, is it's me with different types of makeup. It's me with different types of glasses frames. It's me in these different ways. And to me, it just felt like playing dress up, you know, in the same way that I do go and get my hair and a great blowout and a full face of makeup and go take some great selfies. Like, I don't know. It was really fun, Mark. And so I'm really, it, was, it didn't feel fake to me. And that is really challenging because there are these things where you start to look back at yourself and the uncanny valley becomes you, you know, you really start to think, oh, I think there's going to be a lot of issues around people's perception of themselves and beauty standards and a whole heap of things. But I'm already grappling with those in real life, to be honest. So... I mean, I use face app to add makeup after I've taken photos if I don't wear makeup that day because, heck, I just saved myself 30 minutes of putting my makeup on. So I, I don't know. It's already changing us, Mark. What, what can I say? Do you think we'll ever reach a point where we will be uncomfortable seeing ourselves without being filtered? Oh, see, I have a very different take on how people present online because, you know, growing up internet, I think avatars were always a thing and that could be, you know, some, a picture that you drew could be your avatar. You have different handles and the way that we manage how, our, how we present ourselves online is one thing. I think it's then how you then take it back into the offline world. And look, this could just be talking about my ego and how you know, positively reared I have been, but I just think how much more awesome I look more often now. I'm like, <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> For me, it's been great. I'm like, this is so much fun. I look awesome every day. Meanwhile, I'm sitting at home in my pyjamas drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> what about for you, Dr. Erica? Do you think it's possible that our relationship will become skewed? I, I guess I say that in light of the fact that we know, you know, in the early days of something like Facebook or Instagram, I, I don't think, well... I don't think all of us could have predicted the way in which it would change our relationship with each other online. Do you think we're being mindful enough of the potential ways in which this could be psychologically challenging? I think it's really hard. And I think it's hard to see the younger generations. I'm definitely, I guess I always wanted to interrupt Sarah and go, but why do you need the makeup? Why do you need that filter? I'm, I'm one of those, if you see me with makeup, my students just about fall down because they're like, oh my goodness, are you going somewhere fancy? There's going to be this push for authenticity as well. And I think that's the, the taking it back into the real world. I think people can exist 
as like not even just an avatar, but a persona online. We saw it with keyboard warriors when chat became a thing. And, and this idea of having almost a completely different persona that you can be in a different place. I think that's the challenge that we're working at. Like, is it a rose tinted glasses version of us? And is this the continuation of that kind of filter culture that a lot of people are pushing back against now? Um, and I think that's, it's hard to know. And I feel really sorry for my friends who are artists and photography artists and digital artists because it's really changed and taken away their livelihood um, to a degree by making it available to everybody. Look, I don't know. And, and the other thing is always count the fingers. Anytime you generate a picture of yourself, count the fingers. <laughs> AI is really bad <laughs> at getting five fingers. So, it did, yeah, headshots, not so bad because there's no fingers. But, yeah, I always look for that little thing that's wrong with it. But they're getting so much better that often there aren't any of those anymore. All right. We are out of time. Huge thank you to our panellists this week, Dr. Erica Mealy, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast slash sunny coast thanks for joining us thanks for having me and sarah moran ceo of girl geek academy always a pleasure it's so great to be here and if you enjoyed the program make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse and with that i shall leave you my name is mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of download this show You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.